Do you need water? I need some water. I did have a cup of tea. Oh, hold on. Let me go get my cup of tea. I'm just going to get my glass of water, which is water, in a wine glass. Yeah, right. You are listening to The Bill Podcast. With me, Natalie Rolls. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com. shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and cityfiction.co.uk Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. It's DS Debbie McSanta here. Actually, I don't think Debs have much time for peace and goodwill. Welcome back to this special trilogy of podcasts with the gorgeous Jane Wall. I can't think of a more beautiful smile and soul to be sharing with you on Christmas Day. In part two, we go for a deep dive into Jane's time on the bill, including memories of her interview for the job and the production team's reasons for creating the character of Di Worrell. I also read out a message from an old friend. So grab a mince pie and enjoy. Do you remember your, when you got the bill? When they gave you Die Worrell. I do remember. I do. So I'd been in the show a year before in Heartbreak Hotel, directed by Ted McGuire. Almost a year later, my agent called and they said, Jane, the bill want to see you for a regular role. And I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, what do I need to read? What should I do? What's the audition? And they said, no, you're just going in to meet the producers. And... That was even more scary, you know, like, I think when you're an actor, you're, you have your lines and you know what you're doing and you, you know, you're someone else, but to kind of go in as myself felt really, really intimidating. I remember walking, you know, into, into the, into the room and there's a big table and there was Richard Hanford and about four other people. I think they were other producers at the time. And I was so nervous. I was shaking, sweating. The first thing I saw was Richard Hanford, and he had a really big smile on his face. And in my mind, was he small? Was he a small guy? From what I remember, yeah, he was cute. He was cute, yeah. His feet under the table were doing this. Oh. They were side to side like a kid. Oh, it just completely disarmed me. You know, we can just like, floored. this guy is so lovely. Yeah, just everything just melted away and I felt totally confident, walked into the room. They were so complimentary as well. They'd said that they'd seen my kind of outtakes from the day of working on Heartbreak Hotel. And it's interesting, and I don't know, it'd be really interesting to speak to Jen McGuire if they were looking for someone like me at the time. I don't know, but they said that they looked through the the, the takes and really liked what I had done. 
They also, Richard Hamper talked about the McPherson report. Stephen Lawrence. Yeah, it's the inquiries, the report that came out of the death of um, the murder of Stephen Lawrence. He and the rest of the producers were saying that they had read the McPherson report and they wanted to implement some of the recommendations from that report. You know, there's lots of recommendations, but one of the recommendations that they that they needed, the Metropolitan Police Force needed to not only employ, but retain police officers of colour, of, you know, of ethnic minorities. They they needed to broaden broaden their reach and start employing and retaining. Represent. Yeah, represent. So, I mean, all credit to the bill and the police advisors that they looked at that report, which was scathing. I mean, I don't know... If you ever get a chance to read it, read it, it will make you weep. It, it makes you despair because you're the investigation was so bungled into Stephen Lawrence's death, and they put the family through unnecessary torment. And the police force was, was rightly criticised for corruption, collusion, incompetence, incompetence, and racism, and the inquiry, the report, the McPherson report, at the end is offering some hope for the future. It's off- offering these recommendations. It's offering this this path forward where we can start forging something different. Step in, die Worrell. Yes, and Carl Collins. We got our jobs, and it's never lost on me that we we got our jobs in the bill because oh. a murder of an eighteen-year-old boy on the street for South London and there's this kind of duality there's this contradiction because it's the bill was one of the best jobs in my career so far I had the most fun time and it's just amazing and then there's this this it's twinged with this this reality and it's this steeped in this kind of trauma you know someone else's trauma but it that's how I got my job there's definitely a contradiction there's a duality there's a wrestling of that that feeling. I watched one of the episodes and some of the lines, I, I was just like, whoa, hang on. It was integrity. You refuse to take a part in an undercover operation. As long as there's white people, there'll be racism, sir. When I was watching that, I it was so interesting to me because I was thinking that line was so powerful. But then I was also intrigued that she also says before that diaroral, she's like, I don't want to, I don't want to get involved. What's what's the point? That was interesting to me because I always thought that the way that they wrote the character of Di was that she did everything by the book. She was almost naive in her insistence on giving people the benefit of the doubt. You know, all the other PCs around her could see us like, God, they're right old rotters. But, you know, she's championing some suspect because she thinks that she has to do this due process. You know, I think the writers had a little bit of fun with that, you know, that there's this character that kind of opened herself up to exploitation or not ridicule, but, oh, my gosh, she's being too naive. She's so inexperienced. She's a goody two-shoes almost. And I, yeah, I think they played with that. And they also, with Diwaral's character, I think the writers were also introducing within her character that even if you did things by the book, that you, you know, played the game as it should be and you were diligent, that investigations 
sometimes didn't land the way he wanted them to be. They could be chaotic. They could be disarray. They just didn't turn out the way that you had perceived them to be. So I think with Dai's character, that came in maybe something to do with the McPherson report and it'd be nice to, to, to um, talk to the writers that wrote for all of our characters. Do you think there was enough uh, of the writing for Die Warrell? Do you think you were represented en- enough in the storytelling? I think they could have done more. They could have done more with that character in so many different ways. I think they established that I had, I was a single mother with a, with a child. But I think in light of the McPherson report, what that report was bringing up for the Metropolitan Police Force, I think they could have used a little bit more of that. And that was one of the great things about the bill in general. I think as much as we were a branch of PR, would you say, for the Metropolitan Police, you know, we we gave a good face to it. The bill didn't shy away from those critical stories. You know, there were bank coppers, there were police officers that were doing horrible things. And I think that's why it was well loved because they kind of did that in a in a pretty rounded way i think they they showed the duality of it and the dark and the light but yeah i think i think they could have done more with die warrell sure but die warrell in a matrix leather coat <laughs> was that your idea the coat. I was vibing for the boot, the boots that she was wearing because I see some really like high boots i remember you know, I think I might have bought them myself and brought those to the prop room. Did you keep the coat? <laughs> I did not keep the coat. I did not keep the coat. Oh, they're all the rage now. Someone was wearing one the other day. I don't know who, which personality, and they had, you know, a, a sweatshirt, then the long leather coat, and then I was watching your episode. <laughs> it was always nice to, to get dressed up in the bill, wasn't it? You know, when we had the scenes when we were in the pubs, they were always so much fun for not only the actors, but I think for the makeup artists, because they got to kind of, you know, put you in different hairstyles and different makeups, and that was that was always good. So yeah, that nightmare, that episode was great because I was undercover, I had the nails done, I had the weave, our makeup. It was great. I think it was that episode where you suddenly asked to use the telephone. Of the of the the other the prostitute or something to phone your mom and I was like, hang on, <laughs> would you really ask to use the phone? Surely that's a no no when you're undercover, like calling your your family. That's so funny. Now I was going to ask you, did you ever go out with the um, with police units? Yeah. I don't know. Did you have to ask for that or did they offer that in the interview? Because I had a feeling that Richard Hanford, in the interview, I said, look, I don't know any police officers. Can you please introduce me to someone? And the other thing, you know, we have police advisors on set nearly all the time. We have people that you can talk to, but we can also organise for you to go out with, with some units. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, this will be great. This is This is thrilling. And I went out with two units. One, I think, in... Gate East or Whitechapel it was somewhere around that way two young guys we went very fast in the car at one point because we were called in for a robbery which turned out to be a drunk outside an up license I also went to the Wandsworth police 
that was a more boring day. Nothing happened. We just kind of drove around in the car. But the police officer was a young black woman and she had the weave. She had full makeup and she had the most elaborate nails. And I remember just sitting in the car with her because nothing really was happening and asking way too many questions about like dress code and nails and makeup. So I didn't know you could be a PC and actually have all of those things. Did you know that you could have your long nails and all of that? That's really interesting. Yeah. Isn't it? I would think that would be a no-no. I See, I would have thought it was a no-no, but she, there she was. And she was, I was just so intrigued. And I didn't, before we'd gone out with those units, I didn't know any police officers. So, you know, I had all these preconceived ideas about them. I didn't realise they were real people who got their nails done and, you know, wanted to make the world a better place. They had dreams of doing good in the world, you know? Um, that was that was the essence of Di Worrell, really, wasn't it? That was who she was. She was. It, when, do you remember what the breakdown of the character was when you were, uh, you know, when they give you that sort of synopsis? Oh wow, Nat, that's that's a blast from the past memory. After I know, that. and I I just sort of remember just like little key words in mind. But yeah, I wondered what if you had to say three words about Di Worrell, what words would you use about her? I think they did reference by the book. No. That was her. She was lovely. There was a storyline that was going on behind one of your episodes and it was the um, Polly story. <laughs> and that just seemed to go on and on. There were loads of little scenes. And I thought, hang on, this went... It did go on for years, I think, that one, didn't it? It kept everyone hanging on. What with Quinn and Was it that story when they're... they're getting it on together. Yeah. Yeah. I was always so jealous of Andy Paul. I don't know if you worked with him ever, but he was one of those actors that would literally, I mean, he must have known his character so well. And it was always so daunting. When I got a script, I would, honestly, I'd read it and read it and read it and learn it and learn it. And I'd always be obsessing about the lines. And Andy Paul, you'd roll up on set, he'd ask the continuity person, he's like, right, what, what are my lines today? And they'd give him a sheet of paper and he'd go, da 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 and then he'd throw the paper somewhere. He wouldn't even put it in his back pocket. He'd throw it. Just do it. He could just do it like that. I mean, he was genius. And I'm still, I still think about that to this day, that he could just, he had like photographic memory or something. Yeah, I remember. I didn't do too much with him because it was uniform, but I, yeah, I've seen, I'd seen it. Steve Hartley was a little bit like that. He could just do a, a couple of, you'd rehearse it. I like that when you rehearsed it. And he'd yeah. get, he'd nail it. And I would be going, oh, hang on, like I am now. <laughs> be like one word that just like screws it for me. Who were your favourite directors? Have you got any, like, obviously Jeb Maguire. Were there any women directors that you can remember? What, the whole time I was there at the Bill, Nats, I don't know if you're the same, I only worked with two women. Two women. It's amazing to me now that, that it was such a male world. You know, all the crew were male, pretty much apart from makeup, continuity, costume. It was a male world, wasn't it? The lighting, all male. The boom operator, all male. Yeah, only two female directors and, of course, well, terrible, but I can't remember their names. When you look back and you think, it is so different now, isn't it? Oh, there was a message from the gorgeous producer. 
Female directors, Gwenon Sage and Moira Armstrong. I wonder how hard it was for them to get their jobs. Would you want to direct ever? I think I'd love to direct, yeah. I think, I think you'd be really good. Uh, yeah, I would like to. And I'd like to employ someone that was really good at the kind of setting up the shots. I think I'd be great with the actors, but maybe not so good at... We'll find someone for that. <laughs> you could be the director. Who did you socialise with out of the cast? <laughs> <laughs> Was there anyone else apart from me? <laughs> it's so funny because I, I, I don't know if you feel this as well, but when you're, and I don't know if it's just actors, but when you're working in as a regular with all these people, I mean, you absolutely fall in love with them and not in a, not in a creepy way, not in a sexual way. It's like you love the people that you're working with and it's because you're working in this open kind of hearted space and you have to be vulnerable when you're an actor and you, you know, you mess up your lines and you fall flat on your face and you have days where you just shite and you have to trust the people that you're around. And so you have this really massively intense relationship with all these people and then you never see them again. Like you, <laughs> you leave the job and then that's it. It's true. Obviously, I've seen you over the years, and I see Samantha Robson, Vicky Hagen. I'm seeing her tomorrow. She lives in LA. I'm also in touch with Raul Bolignini, who was the third AD on the show. He has got some stories. Oliver, Natalie, if you need, need him on. He was, you know, in terms of hierarchy, he was, he was down here at the time. He was the person who knocked on your door and said, you know, you've got five minutes before you have to get on the bus. Well, Jane, you're in makeup in two minutes, and you know that he'd walk you down and get you a cup of tea. So I'm still in contact with him. He lives out in LA. In he's a very he's successful... massive, isn't he? I he's just like he's a very successful producer. He's he yeah. so well, so well. You should get him on because he's got some great stories about the crew at that time and his job. Whenever we were on location was to find the nearest pub and the most cosy <laughs> lunchtime <laughs> drinking session, which probably wouldn't happen now. But, you know, everyone needed to be lubricated. <laughs> lubricated. <laughs> oh, that sounds a bit... Uh, everyone needed to be <laughs> hydrated. 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 Lubricated, hydrated. <laughs> oh, God, sorry. <laughs> so I've just got this weird image now. <laughs> When you were on the set, who made you laugh the most when you were doing scenes? Who could corpse you? Oh, my gosh. Oh, those days where you just had the giggles. You, it was almost like you were in hell. Like, you couldn't get out of them. And I remember um, Suzanne, like, we would get crazy giggles. I mean, terrible, terrible. And then one time, Rene, Rene Zaga. <laughs> Lovely Rene. We had one of those days where, you know, when you're on different units throughout the day, and then at the end of the day, it was like a night shoot. So we've been working from morning, and then the bus comes and picks you up from one unit and takes you to another unit. Everyone's exhausted. It's the last shot of the day, and it was dark. 
And we, Rene and I were the officers that were finding this girl that had been tied up in this warehouse. And we literally had, I don't think I had any lines. He had to run in and say, hello, oh my God, you know, are you okay? I'm PC Klein and this is Di Worrell and this is PC Di Worrell. Everyone's exhausted. You, you kind of get up to speed. The director will say, well, this is what's happened in the plot because you, you, you know, you would arrive on scene sometimes and you, you had to kind of get your bearings of what episode it was, what unit it was, what happened. So the kind of director would go through that with you. And so anyway, so we run in and, you know, going for our first take and Rene says, I'm PC Di Worrell and this is PC <laughs> And you just lost it. That we just could not get it back. We why <laughs> Just wetting ourselves. I mean, just once that's happened. <laughs> Brilliant. He was so funny. So funny. And, you know, that when that happens on set, you just, it's it's horrible. It's terrible. Because, you you know, one part of you is, like really wants to get back to, to work and then the other part is just gone. It's lost. Oh, did you know that this, your face, is on the cover? No. I have to get really, really close. I know, really. A complete series 15. And there you are representing. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, I love that. That's so nice. Aww. Loved Colin. He was amazing. I've got a couple yeah. of messages for you. Oh, you Right, Suzanne. <laughs> Jane Wall. Lovely person, lots of fab memories. Ask her about the time Andy Paul was imitating everyone's walk. She jumped up and said, here is Suzanne, and just nailed it. Everyone was screaming as it was brilliant. You impersonating Suze, please give her my love. Aww. I could have done that scouse, but that wouldn't do. Natalie, has anyone talked about the building this, in, in all of these talks? Funny enough, we were saying um, today there was an episode of you at the Old Bailey and we were wondering if you were actually, if there was like an outside shot of the Old Bailey and then yeah. you, you, obviously, you, you, and then a set for the court courtroom, which I remember doing Debbie in, in the courtroom situation. But you just see the, the Old Bailey and you say, oh, wow, it looks great. That studio, it was utilitarian. It was pragmatic. It was unpretentious. And I think for the longest time, I didn't have a car. So I was getting the tube from Belsize Park on the Northern Line all the way down to Morden. Then I'd do that 15-minute walk through the industrial park. I think there was like a plumbing store or something. And then at yeah. the end there was our studio. And there was something just so unpretentious about the studio. And I think that bled into how everyone was on the bill. The building itself, that studio was a workplace. There's nothing fancy about it. There's nothing glamorous about it. It was pragmatic. It was sensible. And as you walk through the door, it was just, it didn't intimidate you. There'd be someone on reception who would smile and say, oh, hi. Then you'd go to your dressing room and then you had the writers. You had the cafeteria. You had the prop room, the costume department, the makeup. And the flight deck through the middle where you just, everyone walked down, which was a social, and the tea point. 
You'd always meet people at tea point. Always at tea. I think a building gives the way you are in a building, where you, where you live, changes you. And I think the workspace of that place in the middle of Morden or everywhere, Merton, was unpretentious. And I think everyone within the bill just lived by that. It was, you were going to work. Everyone was just friendly and normal and grounded. And when I joined the bill, a lot of the cast members already had families. I, I didn't have a children then or, you know, wasn't married, but there was a sense of just normal normalcy. I don't know if you felt that, but I think in terms of why the bill was so good, I think it was that camaraderie and also the groundedness of the people that were in the bill. And I mean that not just the actors, I think in every department, you know, in the costume department. I always remember the receptionist. She was so lovely. Always say hello to you when you came in. Yeah, I just think there's something about that studio. I think you're really spot on there. It was quite basic. No frills. You went to work and we loved our work. And we didn't care that we came out. You know, we went there in the dark and came there out in the dark when it was winter. And then you went on the tube for the next, you know, whatever you'd done. You know, it was proper commuting. Yeah. But you didn't care because you're going to have fun at work. Remember those seven o'clock calls getting on the Northern Line in Belsize Park roughly around like 5.45 or something or six-ish. And, you know, being on the, on the tube with people that were either getting back from their jobs or going early to their jobs. And then you'd get out and it'd be dark in the winter, it'd be dark and then walking that walk. Yeah, just that building. And then within the building, it had these amazing sets. You had the courtroom, the creepy hospital. I never liked being in the hospital. I've always found that so creepy up there. But we went on location a lot. And that that being one of the PCs, I loved that part of our job, that we were always getting on the bus to go somewhere in South London. And I see South London as one of the characters because, you know, in, in it was the backdrop of every scene that was out on location was Morden, Merton, Croydon, the Croydon Witch Centre. It's your my manner, life. babe. It's your manner. I think I ran into my uncle, my uncle Francis, who was a cleaner in when we were filming one of the one of the scenes. Aww. Yeah. I think being out on location was unpredictable as well. Did you get to go out on location? Yeah, a lot? I love that. I love being, yeah, I just loved it. And you yeah. didn't know where you were going. And some some episodes were had some money and they would take you up to the city of London. And, you know, there might be a ridiculous, like, you know, two million pound pad. And, you know, it was just like, this is really weird because we, we're back in Merton, but we're here for the day and you're walking past the globe. You know, they were the money apps. You'd be doing your scenes within real life. You know, people would be doing their shopping and you'd have your your pack on with your microphone sticking out and you would be arresting someone through, you know, there'd obviously be extras and stuff, but, you know, we could never cordon anything off, really. We were just amongst people's lives. And I really liked that visceral aspect of making a drama. You know, if you're, I think if you are making TV, if you can have it out in the wild, so to speak, it's real. I think that grittiness comes across. You know, when I watched some of the episodes, I was like, wow, yeah, shout out to South London. It looks, it looks amazing. That, that is a character in itself. 
Did you get people coming up to you in the street thinking you were a copper and, and say, you know, something's happened over there? Did people or... Yeah, I think that's the unpredictability about it. You get people coming up, people like looking, going, like, what are they doing? Like, why is she, why is she talking multiple times to herself? Into this? <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd get those locations. So Croydon Wicker Centre, I used to love going to, obviously, because that was my old stomping ground. But we used to go to this estate called the Roundshore Estate. And so you'd get in the bus and they were on to us on that estate because we'd arrive in our bus we managed to set up the scene or we, you know, whatever flat we were using. We managed to do a few rehearsals and then invariably someone would blast out their music in another flat and the sound guy would be like, no, sorry, can't go for it. <laughs> but then it would be like, you know, it's whole production. Someone would have to run up, probably Raul would have to run up and bung them five quid or 10 quid. I don't know how much money, but you know, then we'd get like an hour or an hour and a half where it'd be silent on this day. And then we'd set up for the next shot and the same thing would happen in a different flat and music would come flaring out. You had good memories going off on the buses and not knowing what your day was. That was it. It was all part of the journey, wasn't it? It was just, and then you'd come back home to Deer Park Road and then you'd have to go off on the tube. I didn't last that long. I think I, I I did a year of that commute. I couldn't quite do it. And then I moved not far. You moved as well, didn't you? You yeah, came but, south in the end. Yeah. By the end of the bill, I was living in um, Tooting, off of Tooting Carmen. Do your kids watch the bill? Have they seen much of Die Worrell? I don't know if your son is the same, but my kids are so not interested. In 2019... We were back in Croydon. I remember we just got off the train at East Croydon. I was getting some money out. We we're going to see my mum, still lives in Croydon. And this woman who was one of the rail star, she was going, Daddy, Daddy. Kids were so freaked out. And I was kind of freaked out. And so I was like, Why is she telling me to die? <laughs> and she was like, So you want to see this morning? And I was like, No way. And I didn't realize they showed it on UK Gold. I didn't realize. She's like, I saw you die, I saw you. And my kids were so chuffed, and I was chuffed, because Aww. in that moment, like I had a famous moment at East Croydon Station. It couldn't have been better. And <laughs> my kids were there to witness it. And I think, you know, your kids don't think, they're just me, 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 like actors are, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they're just thinking of themselves the whole time. So they don't think that you've had a life before then. There'll be more to come from Jane in part three of Her The Bill podcast, where we talk about her explosive exit from the series and her starring role in a brand new feature film. And as a festive treat, you won't have to wait the usual month for part three, which we'll be sharing with you on New Year's Eve to see out 2023. Instead of five gold rings, we'd love it if you could give us five gold stars on Apple Podcasts, which really helps us climb the charts so that more people can discover The Bill Podcast. 
We'll be back very soon, lovelies. In the meantime, Merry Christmas and thank you all for your support of the podcast. You have been listening to The Bill Podcast, presented by me, Natalie Rolls. Brought to you in association with georgefairbrother.com, shop.saturdaymorningpress.co.uk and cityfiction.co.uk. The Bill Podcast is produced by Oliver Crocker, co-produced by Ben Adams, Glenn Allen, Rob Cook, Georgina Dark, Sarah Kuyper, Calvin Millward, Maz Mirabliss, Alex Mockler and Simon Wolfe. Executive produced by Isabel Allen, Ben Ashmore, Alana Dewar, Andrew Dyack, Paul Dunn, Tony Drury, Dan Evans, Laura Ewing, George Fairbrother, Luke Hegarty, Alan Hunting, Edward Kellett, James Ladane, Lucy McNeil, Gary Moncur, Danny Morris, Steph Morris, Claire Norbury, Laura Pinifay, Michael Seeley, Tom Sherrington, Angel Stannard, Paul Statter, Patrick Stratford, Tom Wentworth, Michael Weil, and Sarah Went. The theme music is composed by Matthew Annis. You can unlock over 100 hours of bonus The Bill podcast content as a patron, including cast and crew commentaries, reunions, reactions, billgrimages, <laughs> off-the-beat podcasts, and much more. Support us from 2 49 a month at patreon.com forward slash The Bill podcast. <laughs> <laughs>